the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. HHS Secretary Alex Azar yesterday at the Coronavirus Task Force briefing gave us an update on uh, testing as well as uh, stockpiling medications that could be a prospective antiviral therapy. As of today, 20 different emergency testing options with the FDA responding to requests for authorization typically within 24 hours. The number of options is growing nearly every day. FDA has also opened up new options for using the available tests, like self-swabbing and new options for reagents. Uh, Let's pick it up right there with Dr. Jerome Adams. He is the United States Surgeon General. Dr. Adams, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Well, let's start with the the antivirals that uh, Secretary Azar mentioned. One is uh, the process, you know, since there's, uh, what, 1,100 trials going on per President Trump the other day with respect to the hydroxychloroquine plus the ZPAC, the the prospect of that coming online beyond the FDA-approved emergency use. And then what else is in the offing? I've heard that uh, there's as much optimism about remdesivir as there is the uh, hydroxychloroquine plus the ZPAC. There are literally hundreds of trials going on around the world right now looking at different therapeutics. And as you mentioned, the most promising ones are remdesivir, which is a Gilead drug, and then uh, hydrochloroquine and chloroquine, which are anti-malarial drugs that are also uh, in some cases used for rheumatologic diseases. It's important for people to know that we've got a long-term timeline. We're looking at about a year out uh, next year for vaccines. We're looking at weeks to months before we feel good about a therapeutic. And then right now, what we're really helping people understand is that historically, when you look at these types of diseases, the way that you stop the initial surge, the initial go-round, is basic public health measures. I put a tweet out on this this morning. It's what your, what your mother told you all along. Wash your hands, keep your hands to yourself, and stay away from strangers. And really, that social distancing and that good hygiene is what's going to get us through this initial surge and buy us some time so that we can get some better therapeutics out there and treat people. That's fair enough. And I just want to pick up on the weeks and, uh, and months with respect to the antiviral therapies, because President Trump on Sunday evening at the briefing essentially uh, picked up on a position that others have taken, including in the medical community, that maybe we need to move away from safe and effective to safe as the standard to bring an antiviral online and get FDA approval in this in this context? Well, we are in crisis mode right now. And the simple truth is that if one of my loved ones was in the hospital uh, with COVID, I would want to have a discussion with a physician about all options being on the table. And so we want to make it possible from a federal point of view for, uh, for that conversation to be able to be held. But we also owe it to the American people to not just blanketly say, 
hey, we're going to accept that this is an effective treatment because uh, there, there are real problems with drugs. Every drug that we give someone can save your life or it can kill you if given to the wrong person for the wrong reason. And so we feel better about the safety of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine because they've been on the market for years, but that doesn't mean that they are without risk and it doesn't mean that they're effective. So we're going to make them available and we're going to collect the data so that in a few weeks to months, hopefully we can tell people, look, this either does or doesn't work and it is either safe or not safe in these array of populations. If you do see promising results like you have with the drugs mentioned with remdesivir or others, will you stockpile those the way that uh, HHS reported you're stockpiling uh, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine? Absolutely. If we find something is promising and we are looking at the data day by day, literally hour by hour, and we're also being proactive. We're not waiting. We're, we're working with companies to increase manufacture. We're stockpiling where appropriate. Uh, one of the challenges with stockpiling is you've got to realize these drugs were designed originally for other purposes and other people. And so you don't want to pull so much away that you actually hurt the people who need them at the current moment. But we're thinking through those things right now so that it, if, if we find out that this is effective, we can immediately say to people, hey, we've got plenty of supply and doctors go forth and prescribe. I was uh, speaking with a doctor uh, here at Loyola uh, in Chicago. He brought up an interesting point talking about uh, uh, the, the, the spread in high-density areas like New York City and some other urban centers. And he talked about the people living in apartment buildings, condo buildings, multifamily units, and that the ventilation systems in those buildings uh, is such that it doesn't prevent the spread of the virus within the buildings. It's actually not like an airplane, for example, where you, the, the air is circulated out, that you can have somebody who's infected, and I live in a condo building, by the way, uh, on the first floor, and it can travel through the ventilation to the fifth floor, and maybe in high-density areas where a lot of people live in multifamily housing, that's one of the ways it's spreading. Does that jibe with you? Well, first of all, Loyola, great school. I actually matched there for my residency. I don't know if you all know, but um, my family and I have lived in the Midwest for the last uh, 25 years before oh, okay. I became Surgeon General. But I asked this question specifically of Tony Fauci, and here is the answer he gave me. When you look at COVID-19, uh, we still believe that the majority, and when I say the majority, I mean the large majority of this spread is by droplet, um, droplet transmission. Droplets only travel so far. They only travel, and that's why we have these social distancing guidelines. They mm -hmm. travel just a couple of feet, and there is literally no evidence we found so far that this virus will get aerosolized to the point that it can go through ventilation systems. So right now, uh, there is no evidence out there to suggest that this particular disease will travel through ventilation systems and harm people. The most effective means of it transmitting is by people coughing or sneezing on each other or by it getting on surfaces and then people touching those surfaces and then touching their face or their hands or their mouth or their nose. Dr. Adams, the CDC is considering the general public wear face masks while out in public. How do you feel about that? Well, the CDC actually hasn't changed their recommendations. The WHO and the CDC have both said at this point they do not recommend it. We see it happening in other countries, and here's what people need to understand. Uh, right now, the preponderance of the scientific evidence says that face masks are not effective in preventing the general public from catching COVID-19 as individuals. Uh, what we do know is if people are sick and they wear a mask, then if they cough or they sneeze, those droplets aren't going to go five feet, six feet out, and it can prevent transmission of disease. And that's why we tell in the CDC and who recommend this, they recommend that people who are sick wear these masks. We know there's a real potential downside if everyone goes out there and starts buying surgical masks 
because there's PPE shortages among healthcare workers. And we want to make sure healthcare workers can get them if we need them. We're following the evidence every single day uh, with more and more cotton masks and cloth masks being produced by manufacturers. We may decide that in certain areas where there's large amounts of community spread, we suggest to people that more people wear these cotton masks. But for the surgical masks, the traditional surgical masks, we want them reserved for healthcare workers. And right now, there's not a lot of evidence. There's actually very little evidence that the net benefit is greater than the harm to the individual wearer. There's also concern, and you've heard Dr. Fauci mention this, about people touching their face more frequently when they're wearing a mask and actually potentially increasing their risk of getting COVID-19. President Trump was asked about uh, this uh, roadmap back to openness that uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb put out, uh, former FDA director. And uh, in that uh, in that document, he suggests that the trigger to start reopening one of them, the key one, uh, to start reopening society uh, effectively is uh, having a handle on all those affected, uh, infected and, and their status, as well as the contact tracing piece of it and having a handle on all those who they've come in contact with. So uh, if that is the, uh, the theory under which the administration is operating, you know, when do we move past uh, testing with respect to just those presenting symptoms and do the testing of, of the, those people, do the contact tracing, the, the testing of those people with whom they've come in contact? Great question. I talk to doc, Dr. Gottlieb all the time, and I agree with him here. I agree that when you look at diseases like measles and tuberculosis, we don't shut down the entire city, but we don't do that because we're able to test for them. And then we have teams of people who we send out to follow up on them aggressively and follow up their contacts so that we can isolate them and ensure they aren't going to spread them to others. Important to know that we've done over a million tests, over 100,000 per day now, and we also now have a new Abbott test that returns results in five minutes. So testing is rapidly ramping up. We want to get to a place where we have good surveillance numbers. And what does that mean? Well, when you look around the country, South Korea initially tested about one in 200 in their initial surge. For us, that would be one and a half to two million people, and we are at one million people right now. Uh, we're continuing the ramp up. We'd really like to get to a place where every county, every, every place around the country can say, look, we've tested a, a, a certain amount of people, one in, one in 100 of our population, and we feel pretty good the same way we do with flu or anything else, that we've got a low-lying rate and that when people have symptoms, we can, we can chase them down, we can isolate them. And so I, I expect and hope that we will get there within the next couple of weeks based on how rapidly our ramping numbers have been testing up. But in the meantime, we need everyone to act as if they have the disease. And that means stay at home and especially stay away from people who are older or who have uh, comorbid conditions like heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, diabetes, so you don't spread it to them. He is Dr. Jerome Adams. He's the Surgeon General of the United States and a Midwesterner. We're happy to hear that. Dr. Adams, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Really helpful. Appreciate your time. That's the power of love. That's the power Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show, transitioning from uh, science, a conversation with Surgeon General Dr. Jerome Adams, to faith and uh, the need to respect both. Mike Lindell, of course, uh, our friend from My Pillow, was uh, one of the CEOs that was present at uh, President Trump's Coronavirus Task Force briefing on Monday evening. 
and he spoke about uh, what my pillow is doing and we'll get to to aid the overall effort. And we'll get to that, plus uh, the uh, contributions of the other companies represented. But uh, something else uh, Mike Lindell did, going off script a little bit, uh, to uh, offer some advice and counsel to uh, American families, consistent with um, his personal story, Lindell had this to say. God gave us grace on November 8, 2016, to change the course we were on. God had been taken out of our schools and lives a nation had turned his back on God. And I encourage you to use this time at home to get to home to get back in the word, read our Bibles and spend time with our families. Our president gave us so much hope where just a few short months ago we had the best economy, the lowest unemployment, and wages going up. It was amazing. With our great president, vice president, and this administration and all the great people in this country praying daily. We will get through this and get back to a place that's stronger and safer than ever. Uh, Of course, uh, Lindell being uh, lampooned in certain quarters for uh, raising the specter of God and faith and prayer. But, uh, you know, as the old uh, aphorism goes, no God, K-N-O-W, no God, no fear, N-O fear, Uh, no God, N-O God then K-N-O-W, fear. You get it? No God, no fear, no God, no fear. Spelling important. And uh, so uh, the faithful tend to be the fearless because they're uh, living to give glory to God in this life with an eye toward the next one. Uh, And that's okay if you don't believe. But uh, suggesting that um, families read Scripture in this time or, you know, uh, tomes consistent with your particular religious tradition. I don't think that's a bad thing. It's, it doesn't need to be the only thing, but I don't think it's a bad thing. Uh, my uh, uh, pastor, who sort of serves as a spiritual advisor, has given me a, a good way to approach that, just to try to keep Scripture as part of your daily life. You know, you don't have to just work it into your daily routine, 15 minutes. 15 minutes during the day at some point, uh, read uh, a few passages just to keep that as part of your routine, something where it keeps uh, God on your mind uh, in your uh, daily actions. And uh, so this is uh, particularly on my mind because of what's happening during the uh, cancellation of April and the general shutdown of America, uh, more draconian in some places than others. For example, in uh, Hernando County, Florida, where Pastor Rodney Howard Brown turned himself into authorities yesterday afternoon, charged with unlawful assembly in violation of a public health emergency order. He is the pastor of a megachurch. He held two Sunday services this past Sunday with hundreds of people violating that uh, uh, shelter-in-place order uh, that was instituted. Bail set at 500 bucks. And he was released after posting bond. Uh, So you're going to have to help me here. Why is it okay to fly if you sit three rows from somebody else, but it's not okay to pray if you attend a church service three rows from somebody else or three pews, as the case may be, from somebody else? What's the difference? Why uh, aren't we... uh, uh, hearing a hue and cry about all those who ran to the dock to 
welcome the USNS Comfort to New York City when it arrived in port yesterday. They, they weren't keeping social distance in this uh, lives of others era in certain quarters. Shouldn't we be taking pictures of all those violating the six foot rule and have them uh, cited or I don't know, I guess in D.C. imprisoned Mayor Muriel Bowser in D.C. threatening residents with 90 days in jail and a five thousand dollar fine if they leave their homes during the virus's outbreak and her shelter in place order. 90 days in jail. It's ironic since in so many other quarters you have politicians talking about uh, releasing people in jail because it's hard to keep uh, prisoners uh, segregated and sequestered in those sort of uh, uh, mass resident environments. But okay. Uh, uh, Going back to the pastor here in Florida. His uh, attorney, uh, he's being represented by Liberty Council, uh, not only did the church comply with the administrative order regarding six-foot distancing, it went above and beyond any other business to ensure the health and safety of the people. So uh, contrary to the sheriff's contention that the pastor was quote-unquote reckless, according to the pastor's attorney, the actions of the county and the county sheriff are discriminatory against religion and church gatherings. In Chicago, my hometown, this past Sunday, police uh, disbanded a funeral at a church on the northwest side. Just before 9 a.m., officers noticed a group congregating inside St. Odishu Church uh, and uh, suggested the crowd uh, that had assembled for the funeral service uh, was uh, between 40 and 60 people, many of whom were elderly. Uh huh. The uh, police spokesman, sincerely, the last thing we wanted to do, but public health during this climate is vastly important for everyone. So is their faith. And so are limitations on the state. No such thing as an overreaction. Is that really the culture you want? Do you understand the implications of that philosophy? No such thing as an overreaction. No space is sacrosanct from state intervention. You know, I have no problem with Bill de Blasio threatening synagogues. You either shut down now or I shut you down permanently. Politician, the government. Decisions need to be made here. Thought needs to be given to the precedents that are being set, to rights that are being infringed upon. Do you ever think that the government interventions we tolerate in crisis will persist when the crisis subsides? Yeah, I think it's uh, terribly troublesome. It also speaks to the folly of the general concern on the uh, secular humanist left. Oh, my gosh, if we uh, allow any prayer, if we allow Mike Lindell to uh, reference God from uh, a podium with the presidential seal on it, somehow establishing a national religion. Yeah, there's always the threat of theocracy right around the corner from the secular humanist left. When in point of fact, the real threat to a free society is not theocracy, not in this country. The real threat is uh, state expunging your First Amendment freedoms, speech, faith. 
something to think about. This is the Dan Prof Show. That's just the way it is. How, oh, but don't you believe that? Yeah. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and we're talking about uh, our friend Mike Lindell, Mr. My Pillow, with respect to what he had to say at Monday night's briefing from a faith perspective. But uh, he was there as one of uh, several corporate CEOs to present on what they're doing to aid the overall response in terms of materials, the PPE materials, and so forth the uh, overall coordinated public-private response to the pandemic. And so let's uh, start with uh, Mike Lindell uh, explaining what um, what he is doing uh, with uh, his company, MyPillow, in terms of repurposing the capacity he has to manufacture. MyPillow has designated some of its call center to help U.S. companies navigate the many issues that resulted from this pandemic. We've, de- we've dedicated 75% of my manufacturing to produce cotton face masks. Um, up to t- in three days, I was up to 10,000 a day. By Friday, I want to be up to 50,000 a day. Um, I'm proud to manufacture our products in the United States, and I'm even more proud to be able to serve our nation in this great time of need. So uh, for those who want to uh, snicker or sneer at Mike Lindell for his expression of faith, what are you doing? in response to the pandemic compared to what Mike Lindell is. And basically, oh, by the way, what he's done since uh, he turned his life around and built this company that makes products, makes his products in America and employs hundreds of people in so doing that he's now repurposing so as to provide cotton masks for frontline healthcare workers. See, it sounds like somebody living their faith to me. That should be respected whether you agree or not. Honeywell CEO Darius Adamchik was uh, also on present, a uh, huge corporation, Honeywell, what they're doing with respect to N95 mask production uh, at all. So in total, we've doubled our production of N95 masks already. It's going to double again within the next 60 days. And then within the next 90 days, we're going to have a 5x the capacity we do today. Furthermore, we're going to be providing other safety equipment to support all the efforts going on. Lastly, I want to say a big thank you to all the Honeywell employees and also announce a $10 million fund for them for all the hourly and administrative employees who are having a hard time during this time of crisis. Oh, that was a nice kicker at the end, huh, from the CEO. Uh, it's, uh, boy, you still have to suspend, tell your friends on the left, they still have to suspend their hatred of uh, amorphous corporations. You know, big pharma, uh, big uh, Fortune 1000 companies uh, with all of those companies repurposing their infrastructure to help in this effort. So many of them, not all of them, but so many of them uh, voluntarily doing so, not at the point of a gun by the president. Uh, you're just going to have to hold off your irrational, counterproductive loathing of the corporation in America for just a little while longer. Then you can resume your irrationality in that direction. 
uh, jockey CEO, Deborah Waller, uh, jockeys uh, helping a specific aspect of this, too. The other thing that's nice to see with all those assembled is the division of labor, something that, of course, these corporate leaders know a lot about. We expect to begin delivering 30 to 50,000 gowns per week, helping those that need it the most right now. In addition, this week, we are also donating 10,000 units of scrubs to the frontline doctors and nurses at the Javits Convention Center in New York City. And uh, Jockey is uh, located in the heartland, uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, is their headquarters. Procter & Gamble CEO David Taylor. They've worked together to transform our plants, to make things we've never made before, like hand sanitizers and facial masks. Some of these are already getting to national, state, and local agencies. Some of them are in the hospitals already. United Tech Corp. Gregory Hayes, CEO. Again, we're working also with logistics. And if you think about a war, strategy is important, but logistics wins war. It's, it's imperative, I think, with FEMA, along with the, the, Mr. Navarro's office, that we coordinate all of these activities. Last week, we donated about 90,000 pieces of personal protective equipment to FEMA. Next week, we'll have another almost million, again, working through our supply chain partners around the world. We're also today, this week, beginning the manufacture of face shields using the additive technologies that we have and the machines that we have available within UTC. We'll be able to produce approximately 10,000 shields in the next four weeks. Again, all needed equipment. It's important to hear from these uh, industry leaders because it's a reminder where innovation comes from, innovations come from. It's a reminder that uh, we don't have an economy if we don't produce things. And these are the individuals representing companies that produce things. That's capitalism, what you're hearing, capitalism not socialism. And it's a reminder as you to, as a frame for the 2020 election. Uh, in addition, uh, come when we come back, I want to pick up a, a discussion of the N95 mask since it is so much talked about and uh, so much demanded at this moment. The origin of it, it's a fascinating story, sort of an eye pencil story, really. Another expression of capitalism. More right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. The untold story of the N95 mask, a really uh, compelling piece at FastCompany.com. Since uh, this is an item so much talked about and uh, so much needed for frontline healthcare workers, the history of it, how it came to be, is a story of human innovation in response to crisis. The uh, piece begins, it's hard to think of a symbol of COVID-19 more fraught than the N95 respirator. The mask fits tightly around the face, is capable of filtering 95% of airborne particles, such as viruses, from the air, which other protective equipment, such as surgical masks, can't do. It's a life-saving device that's in short supply, although the uh, announcement that uh, President Trump made, along with HHS Secretary Azar yesterday, speaks to their coming to be more in supply, not just because of the companies that are reconfiguring what they produce, including car companies, to produce these masks instead, these N95 masks, but also because of the decontaminators so masks can be reused. Remember what Secretary Azar said. This weekend, 
we actually worked to secure 30 million tablets from Sandoz and 1 million tablets from Bayer of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, which are potential COVID-19 treatments, and we authorized Battelle's new decontamination machines, which can each sterilize thousands of essential N95 masks for reuse every day. There you go, right at the end there, but it's worth rem- being reminded about all the things that are being pulled together. So back to uh, the origins of the N95 mask. Going back even further, uh, before we understood that bacteria and viruses could float through the air and make us sick, people improvised masks to cover their faces going back further than uh, 1910 uh, when it started with a little-known doctor who wanted to save the world from one of the worst diseases ever known. This is in Manchuria. This is where the, the genesis of N95, this is the genesis of N95. People uh, during the, uh, you know, you look at Renaissance era paintings, people cover their noses and their handkerchiefs to avoid illnesses. The uh, belief was, you know, through wearing cloth around mouths and noses, you could protect yourself against diseases like the plague. The belief was they were spread by gases emanating from the ground. So the covering of your mouth and nose wasn't to protect you from another person. It was to protect you from the corrupt air. They misunderstood. People thought by protecting themselves from the smell of the plague, they could be protected from the plague itself. And this gave rise to Gen 1 and 95 which uh, is illustrated in this Fast Company piece, and it's comical to look at now, but there were bird-like plague masks that were responsible actually for the spread of the plague because they made people afraid, and thus there was a greater risk for disease. The uh, bird masks, these long beaks on the mask with two eye holes and and, and, uh, breathing holes at the end, because, again, it was the belief that it, you were protecting from the smell rather than from the uh, transmission through the air. By the late 1870s, scientists learned about bacteria. The miasma theory fell from fashion as the modern field of microbi- microbiology emerged. The uh, piece goes on. The distinction between a mask and a respirator is important. It's why healthcare professionals are upset that they're being instructed to wear surgical masks when respirators are unavailable. Masks are not only made of different materials, they fit loosely on the face so that particles can come in from the sides, whereas respirators create an airtight seal so they can actually filter inhalation. And this fast forwards to uh, 1910 and this plague that broke out across Manchuria, northern China, and um, the virus was uh, particularly lethal. The Chinese imperial court brought in a doctor named Lien Te Wu to head its efforts. He was born in Penang, studied medicine at Cambridge. He was young. He spoke lousy Mandarin. In a plague that quickly attracted international attention and doctors from around the world, he was unimportant. But after conducting an autopsy on one of the victims, Wu, this doctor, determined the plague was not spread by fleas, as many suspected, but through air. Key insight, because, of course, it leads him to think about, well, how do you protect people from something that spreads through bacteria in the air? Ultimately, the mask that he designed one out because of an imperial an imperial an empirical testing excuse me that protected users from bacteria it took, quickly became an icon through international news reports so the n95 mask is actually a descendant of his design uh in 1911 and then the advances through world war one and world war ii air filtering gas masks and so forth then uh, fast forward to the mid-20th century, the decor editor for House Beautiful magazine, her name Sarah Little Turnbull, began consulting with 3M's gift wrap division. The purpose was to make stiffer ribbons. She began experimenting with material for shoulder pads, leveraging connections in the fashion industry for advice. 
she um, ultimately started to integrate herself into the company. She spent a lot of time visiting sick family in the late 1950s. She lost three loved ones in quick succession. Out of that grief came a new invention, a bubble surgical mask that 3M released in 1961. And remember, you had that uh, influenza pandemic in 1957. That, yes, takes its inspiration from the cup of a bra, the uh, authors at Fast Company writing. When 3M learned it couldn't block pathogens, the mask was rebranded a dust mask. By the 1970s, the Bureau of Mines and the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health teamed up to create the first criteria for what they called single-use respirators. The first single-use N95 dust respirator, as we know it, was developed by 3M and approved on 1972. in 1972. Turnbull herself consulted on this line of uh, N95 respirators into the 1980s, as well as for many other corporate clients. Um, so it's just I just it's just a fascinating story of um, pragmatism and being presented with problems, trying to identify the source of the problem and then a treatment that is effective in the face of the problem, literally the face in this case. So I, I just I just love this story because, you know, no one could have designed this from a central planning perspective. It took uh, crises going back to the bubonic plague of the Middle Ages, fast forward to uh, uh, theories that were not borne out, and one uh, doctor, young doctor of no particular significance, who figured out from an autopsy that it was uh, uh, how a a disease was being spread, developed a mask, and that was picked up, and that was developed, more fully developed, and, uh, and, and through heuristic exercises changed and altered for the use in war and then come back to the mid-1950s and another pandemic, a flu pandemic, and uh, you have the uh, continued evolution of the N95 respirator, and then, of course, it continued on for successive generations to present. Uh, Just a great story of entrepreneurship and human ingenuity. So you want to incentivize those things, entrepreneurship and human ingenuity. This is Dan Prop. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm just picking up on some of the unsung heroes of uh, the response that we're providing to COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic. The uh, Chinese doctor, Lian Tae Wu, I was mentioning, uh, of course, um, uh, Sarah Little Turnbull, former decor editor at House Beautiful magazine, working with 3M. Uh, it's, fa- it's fascinating. Uh, those are unsung heroes of uh, the response we're able to provide in 2020. And uh, in real time, we've got some unsung heroes or perhaps undersung heroes, the nurses. Great piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, by... Uh, a doctor who's the assistant chief um, of emergency medicine at Kaiser Permanente in San Diego. Nurses are the coronavirus heroes. If you wonder who actually sticks the swabs into the noses of worried patients, it's the nurses. They're on the front line face-to-face in the six-foot danger zone. They're collecting the data that epidemiologists use to track the outbreak. Moving in and out of negative pressure rooms, putting protective equipment on and taking it off, nurses are caring for elderly patients who are severely ill and sometimes crashing. 
the nurses marinate in risk as they spend the greatest amount of time with the patient. They draw blood, obtain samples, provide oxygen, and steadfastly tend to their patient's needs. They are by the doctor's side as we intubate patients struggling to breathe. Once that patient is transferred to an ICU, it's the nurses who do the mundane and the heroic to make sure the patient survives the illness or uh, passes away more comfortably. He goes on, how critical are the nurses to the capacity of the health system? The number of nurses staffing the hospital determines it ca- its capacity. That's how, how critical. An absence because of a sick call or child care closes three beds. Understaffed floor beds result in boarding in the emergency department, and that creates a waiting room backup. I commend the scientists at big pharma companies for developing better tests and vac- vaccines. I thank the teachers setting up remote classes and the managers making tough business decisions. Everyone is playing a part, but none are more important than our nurses. Great, great piece. Uh, good perspective from Paul Dornwend, who is, as I said, the assistant chief of emergency medicine at Kaiser Permanente in San Diego. And, you know, and by the way, thinking about uh, the things that we were in short supply of before this pandemic, one of them, nurses um, and uh, the critical role they play as uh, uh, as part of our uh, universe of healthcare professionals. Uh, switching gears, I want to recommend again No Safe Spaces, which is uh, available for a limited time only at nosafespaces.com. This is the number one political documentary of 2019 that was put together by our colleague and friend, Dennis Prager, as well as uh, his buddy, Adam Corolla, to reveal how America has become a dangerous place to speak your mind and share ideas. To uh, their point, Hollywood has done a great job trying to prevent uh, no safe spaces from being seen outside of theaters in 2019 by essentially blacklisting no safe spaces on the streaming services. But that's okay because Dennis and Adam have found a way. And uh, during this time, when you have more time with your family, more downtime, you can check out their excellent documentary, no safe spaces at no safe spaces.com and support a film that shares your American values in the process. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us online, Dan Proft. Show.com, where you can get our podcast as well as on iTunes and uh, Spotify and all the normal places. On social media, at Dan Prof Show, both on Facebook and Twitter, at Prof Dan on Instagram. There you go. That should suffice. Uh, well, uh, he gave it a shot. Can't blame Trump for being unwilling to give it a shot. Gave it a shot. Took a question from CNN's Jim Acosta uh, at uh, his Monday evening task force briefing. And I'll tell you what. Uh, actually, all kidding aside, brilliantly called on Jim Acosta. Why? Because Jim Acosta dutifully played the patsy to President Trump. Go ahead. Let's give it a shot. Sir, uh, what do you say to Americans who are upset with you over the way you downplayed this crisis over the last couple of months? Uh, we have it very much under control in this country. The coronavirus is very much under control in the USA. It's going to disappear. It's like a miracle. It will disappear. March 4th, uh, we have a very small number of people in this country infected. March 10th, 
We're prepared. We're doing a great job with it. It will go away. Just stay calm. It will go away. What do you well, say to Americans who believe that you got this wrong? And I do want them to stay calm. And we are doing a great job. If you look at those individual statements, they're all true. Stay calm. Uh, it will go away. You know it. You know it is going away, and it will go away. And we're going to have a great victory. And it's people like you and CNN that say things like that. That uh, it's why people just don't want to listen to CNN anymore. You could ask a normal question. The statements I made are: I want to keep the country calm. I don't want panic in the country. I could cause panic much better than even you. I could do much. I would make you look like a minor league player. But you know what? I don't want to do that. I want to have our country be calm and strong and fight and win. And it will go away. And it is incredible the job that all of these people are doing, putting them all together. The job that they're doing. I am very proud of the job they're doing. That Mike Pence is doing. That the task force has done. That Honeywell and Procter and Gamble and Mike and all of these people have done. I'm very proud. It's it's almost a miracle, and it is the way it's all come together. And instead of asking a nasty, snarky question like that, you should ask a real question. And other than that, I'm going to go to somebody else. Please go ahead, please. A strong response from President Trump that was on the mark, and I thought uh, Jim Acosta inadvertently served that up for President Trump. You know, here's the thing: we've talked about this before, but uh, we'll talk about it again. The, the complete lack of institutional knowledge in making this assessment, even setting aside the double standards, right? With uh, Cuomo and de Blasio, hey, we can't look back uh, at what was done right through the middle of March. We just have to look forward. With President Trump, the only thing we want to do is look back. Just setting that hypocrisy aside for a minute, just the institutional knowledge here and the lack of interest in obtaining any institutional knowledge, much less, much less reporting it. Good piece in National Review, nationalreview.com, by retired Air Force Colonel Randall Larson, who also served 15 years at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, How to Win the War on Coronavirus. And uh, we'll get to his sort of three-pronged answer. But first this. Since, uh, during the past several decades, many of my colleagues in the biosecurity and public health communities, plus a bipartisan group of political leaders, and, and he rattles off a number of senators, have argued to include public health as a key element in national security. Unfortunately, most national leaders fail to listen. I suspect that may be changing, albeit a bit late. During the past several decades, several decades, he goes on to say, to write, Unbeknownst to most Americans, for years we've been losing the war against infectious diseases because of antibiotic resistance. Additionally, while we have dodged several bullets during the past two decades, SARS, MERS, Ebola, a few different strains of influenza, we now find ourselves much like the American soldiers at the Kasserine Pass in 1943 in the Korean Peninsula in July 1950, outgunned and unprepared. If there was ever a time to put public health on equal footing with traditional national security roles, it is today. He continues, at the national level, we must focus our efforts in the near term and long term on three key areas identified by Senators Bob Graham, Democrat from Florida, Jim Talent, Republican from Missouri, uh, in 2011, developing the uh, capability to rapidly produce and deploy point of care diagnostics, which we didn't have going into this, clearly, developing the capability to rapidly produce vaccines and therapeutics. Well, we somewhat have that, um, and you see the the uh, responsiveness of the of the, the, the uh, pharma sector as well as logistics and every other sector in the uh, pursuit of uh, 
antiviral therapies and the uh, pursuit of a vaccine as well. And then thirdly, significantly increased surge capacity in our medical facilities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was in 2011. Uh, Again, we talked about uh, the 2004 National Intelligence Center report about uh, America's underpreparedness for a pandemic and what a pandemic could uh, wreak on the country, both in terms of public health and economic health. Our friends over at uh, justthenews.com, that's John Solomon's new outlet, went back and looked at more than a dozen reports on pandemics, government preparedness, what a response should look like, the kind of infrastructure we need, going back to the 1990s. And uh, largely we had uh, administration after administration, Republicans and Democrats, Republicans and Democrats in Congress, Republicans and Democrats out in the hustings and state uh, uh, offices, all the infectious disease experts at CDC, at NIH, at uh, major hospitals around the country. Very little of the advice was taken. And, uh, you know, there's money associated. There's costs associated with it. So we talked about this a little bit uh, last week with uh, Professor Michael Lind. And uh, it's difficult to get people to buy into spending money at present for a threat that may never come or you think may never come or it's not imminent. It's not happening right now. And there I've got other priorities of of uh, spend for limited taxpayer dollars, although they certainly don't spend like they're limited taxpayer dollars, do they? It's just hard to do, although we do with the military in terms of military preparedness. But it's a little bit different because you're largely you're financing some big infrastructure that you need, but it's infrastructure that you need for human beings that are uh, practicing on preparing for utilizing that those uh, materials, uh, resources, machines, right? Here, you're talking about stockpiling of N95 masks that you don't need at present at hospital A, B, or C around the country. Ventilators that you don't need at the present in hospital A, B, or C. And there's also this. It's just difficult to predict what form a pandemic might take and what you will need. Isn't it? In fact, at least there was some humility shown by Dr. Deborah Burks when she Uh, This is last week at one of the briefings talked about, look, uh, you know, we didn't predict that you would have a respiratory virus like COVID-19 happen concurrent with flu season. So it's not something we predicted. So we didn't prepare for. So it speaks to, again, the humility that we all should have, including experts in the field, the lessons that should be learned uh, prospectively and the preparations that should be made as best as possible. Because just because we learn lessons from this doesn't mean that we're going to perfectly predict or perfectly resource whatever the next threat may may come. Uh, And so, but I was interested in something that uh, actually uh, Seema Verma uh, had to say at Monday night's briefing. She is the uh, director of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Listen to this statement. In a time of crisis, regulations shouldn't stand in the way of patient care. Should they stand in the way of patient care in uh, times of non-crisis? Of course not. So maybe one of the takeaways, including uh, preventing mission creep at core agencies like NIH or CDC, uh, additionally, the regulations 
the difficulty of bringing antivirals to market, uh, vaccines to market, uh, questioning whether or not the standard at the FDA should be safe and effective when it comes to clinical trials or just safe and then full transparency for medical professionals as well as uh, patients alike. There are a lot of takeaways here, things that we could adjust that would be positive in addition to all of the rebuilding that's going to need to be done on the other side of this virus. Uh, But you know what? It starts with two things that are sort of corollaries, two sides of the same coin, if you will. A little bit of humility and a lot of bit of courage. The courage to recognize that certain things that we've been doing don't make sense. They don't square with the facts. They haven't been effective. And maybe we need to make some changes on the margins in certain places. And maybe we we need full paradigm shifts in other places. This is Dan Proff. You gotta fight for your right to Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. When uh, a pastor in Florida is arrested for holding mass, when the Chicago police break up a funeral at a church in Pulaski Park, when the D.C. mayor threatens jail time for anyone who violates her shelter-in-place order. Is it uh, right to ask questions, to offer some healthy skepticism, some consideration of uh, costs and benefits, or are you a denier, hardly? You question uh, the accuracy of models or the premises that underlie them. Are you a denier, or are you um, somebody asking relevant questions about statistical models? Uh, additionally, providing historical context, as we've done here, that uh, report by public health specialists four years after the H1N1 virus, where they reviewed all the studies that came out in the first nine months of that pandemic uh, that lasted from April of 2009 to April of 2010. In those nine months, six dozen studies that had a lethality rate range of one in 100,000 to 10,000 in 100,000. <laughs> How about that range in the real time? But yet we're supposed to uh, run headlong into shutting our lives down and canceling the month of April because of models that uh, those with uh, much more statistical knowledge than I have, uh, both epidemiologists as well as uh, econometricians, suggest there's no denominator that we're flying blind with the data that we have to this point. Professor Goodman from Stanford University, for example. Do you remember World War II when Germany kept the churches open during the bombing of Dresden? Schools were open. And oh, by the way, I mean, you know, other countries are doing it somewhat differently. I mean, and this is not faith based, obviously, because I'm going to mention Sweden. In addition to how different states are responding, there are, you know, 10 states out west that don't have any shelter in place orders. The politicians in places like uh, Doug Ducey in Arizona are taking heat for it because we've been excoriated by the press and by the left who has their message amplified by the Beltway press, that there's no such thing as an overreaction and that you should enthusiastically give up your liberties in exchange for whatever security 
we're supposed to believe politicians are going to provide us. Yeah, I think this is a time for being very realistic about this real threat, this real public health crisis, this real pandemic, while also recognizing that I don't think it's going to be the politicians or the infectious disease experts that alert us to rapture. How about that? For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by David DeVille. He's a senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative. He's also the editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, and visiting professor at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, You uh, wrote a little bit about healthy skepticism at a piece in the Imaginative Imaginative Conservative, the imaginativeconservative.org. Conservative skepticism in the pandemic. And you started out by sort of exploring the question, are are those who identify as conservatives philosophically, ideologically, more inclined to be skeptical than those who identify themselves as men and women of the left? And you sort of conclude yes and then try to answer the question why. Yeah, well, I think part of it is that conservatives have a have a healthy sense of history. You know, I heard you before talking about the H1N1 and I, I mentioned a number of these other uh, sort of apocalypses that were announced. Uh, remember Y2K, anthrax, yeah. cell phone radiation. And so we have a, a sort of a longer sense of what's happened than just yesterday. Uh, we also have a, a sort of understanding that much of the, the media reporting is politicized in a way that many, you know, many liberals still don't think that. They think that if it's on you know, the New York Times site, it sort of comes from a purely objective point of view. Uh, and we understand that there's a lot of politics wrapped up in this. Above and beyond that, we know that uh, the, the questions of modeling and the questions of who's already had the virus are out there. There are some models. An Oxford team did a study that thought that over half of Britain already had uh, uh, in contact with the uh, the coronavirus. And right. I, I have a belief that probably a lot of Americans have. My My in-laws live in Snohomish County, Washington, where the first outbreak was. And they had a they had a mystery illness that was very similar, but but milder. If that's the case, then the possibility for this exponential growth of everybody getting it, you know, may have already run, run dry. And point of fact, there's a, uh, a study and uh, this is in dispute, but uh, it's not like we're conjuring this up out of a whole cloth. There's a study published in the scientific journal Nature Medicine uh, uh, after a team of experts analyzed the pandemic. Dr. Francis Collins, who happens to be the director of the National Institute for, of Health in this country, said as a result of gradual evolutionary changes over years or perhaps decades, the virus eventually gained the ability to spread from human to human and cause serious, often life-threatening disease. They're suggesting that this uh, virus, COVID-19, has uh, been with us perhaps for years, perhaps decades, as it evolved until the, into, into the threat that it poses today. Yeah, I, and I think that's quite possible. There, I've seen similar pieces. I, I don't think I saw the Nature Medicine one, but but yeah, this has been around for for a good while, and it's mutated in in one way, and now it's causing problems. The question is, we really don't know. Uh, there are a couple of doctors at Stanford, Aaron Ben David, and uh, I forget what the other doctor's name, who pu- have published several pieces. One in the Wall Street Journal. Doing doing modeling that seems to suggest that even in Italy they they don't they don't have the room for exponential growth either because it's been around and most people are 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 they don't get any symptoms from from this thing and if, if that's the case then this is gonna this is gonna be a different situation in the U.S. Many of my friends say well we're gonna be just like Italy but we don't have the same age structure as Italy 
We don't have the same smoking rates. We don't live in the same way. So why our mortality rates would be be uh, be different is pretty obvious to me. But many people are saying, oh, it's going to be just like Italy. Well, it could be like Sweden. Uh, something uh, that uh, Leo the Thirteenth, Pope Leo the Thirteenth, wrote uh, during his tenure as Pope uh, back at the end of the nineteenth century: Man precedes the state and possesses, prior to the formation of any state, the right of providing for the substance of his body. You know, it seems to me that a lot of uh, the foundation of the sort of different worldviews, or, or a lot of the basis of uh, of the different worldviews, as you describe, comes from uh, you know the formative thought behind it. That's right. I think a lot of people, well, this is, you know, this has entered into the political debate, and many people are saying, you know, the, uh, the Re- Representative James Clyburn, of course, I quoted him in my piece, you know, supposedly saying, well, this is a great opportunity to restructure everything according to our view. Well, that view is one that the state takes the, the sort of the lead, and we're, you know, maybe we're not cogs in it, but we're certainly secondary. Whereas, you know, a more traditional Catholic view and Christian view is that, that individuals and even more so the family take precedence to the state. The state, you know, the state is there to protect us. We're not there to serve it. And what I fear is in this overreaction and saying, well, we'll just knock off all this, this capacity for people to provide for their, but don't worry, we'll provide more unemployment benefits and maybe universal health care. I, you know, I fear that much of the political reaction to this is going in a direction that we may regret, especially if the, the apocalyptic scenarios don't play out. He is David DeVille, senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative, editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, and visiting professor at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. David, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Cause I'm working for a living Whoa, whoa, whoa. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, uh, modeling and uh, predictions, not just the uh, order of the day on the public health side of the COVID-19 pandemic. Also on the economic side with uh, forecasts of uh, great catastrophe, corona job losses could hit 47 million. Unemployment rate may hit 32 percent, according to a projection by the St. Louis Fed. Uh, Steve Moore and uh, Wall Street Journal columnist and economist uh, writing alongside Ed Fulner at uh, The Spectator, former Heritage Foundation boss. America is the business capital of the world with 26 million men and women owning and operating small, medium-sized firms. Millions will crash into bankruptcy with a prolonged lockdown, regardless of the federal government's business loan rescue program. Revenues are the oxygen source of any small business, and most have seen their customer base fall by half and even to zero through forced closures we got to get going again, and uh, June 1 may be too far in the offing. For more on this topic, and get to get his views, we're pleased to be joined again by Rich Carlgaard. He's the publisher of Forbes magazine, columnist, speaker, and best-selling author of Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. Rich, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be with you, Dan. I, I'm not doing a lot of speaking these days, though. <laughs> 
Well, how uh, panicked are you, uh, if at all, by some of these uh, economic projections and uh, the sense of urgency among some, like uh, our friend Steve Moore and Ed Fulner, to get uh, America opened up again as much as possible, as fast as possible? I entirely agree with them. Let me tell you a little anecdote on on March 7th, which seems like a year ago, but on March 7th, I was in Austin, Texas, to speak at a trade association, the National Coffee Association, and the driver that picked me up um, had just heard that the South by Southwest Conference, which is a big revenue generator, brings $350 million a year into Austin, had been canceled. And the look of horror on his face, he just saw his 10 most profitable days evaporating and I knew right then that people had to consider that side of the equation. And I think our, our, I think our media in general has underplayed the absolute devastation and harm um, that uh, an overreaction to this, to COVID-19, is going to have on the lives of tens and tens of millions, of, as Moore and Fulner and others have pointed out. Well, and it, the other thing, too, is, you know, in terms of uh, predicting the sort of uh, – uh, carnage uh, that could be wrought by the virus on the public health side in terms of people getting sick and people dying. And that's serious business, of course. But uh, we have a lot of questions about that that modeling and those predictions. And we have a lot of questions about the modeling and the predictions of those with respect to our economy, uh, including the president, frankly. And I understand the need to be optimistic and the need, uh, the need to be a calming figure. But the idea that uh, come March, May 1 or June 1, we're just going to snap back into place. We, I don't think there's an appreciation of the kind of carnage economically that could be done in the next four weeks, much less six or eight weeks. Yeah, I sure hope we can open up around May 1st rather than June 1st. Uh, you're absolutely right on that. I just wrote this column in Forbes on, on how to step back and, and forecast things. And one is that you should look at the global stock market to see how this is playing out around the world. And the global stock markets tell you a little more optimistic story. I think the stock markets are projecting that we're going to open up sooner rather than later. And if you think the markets are not good at that, I make the point that probably the most powerful, massively parallel supercomputer in the whole world are the, you know, if you add up all the computing power, storage power, great software, bright minds, they exist in the global stock markets where you have $60 trillion on the line. And people aren't stupid. The other thing you have to recognize is that everybody talks their book. Now, the phrase talk in your book is when a stock analyst uh, recommends a stock and you have to step back and ask yourself whether that stock analyst is really trying to sell you sell you that stock. Or Bill Ackman or Bill Ackman recommends shutting down the economy for 30 days. Well, that, that's absolutely right. So when Dr. Anthony Fauci predicts, as he did on Sunday, that we'll have 100,000 to 200,000 deaths in this first season of COVID-19, you know, bear in mind that he's talking his book. And when I say that, I, I say that, you know, he is not a dishonest man. He is the pillar of honesty. He's a man of science and integrity, but he's talking his book. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean his whole professional reputation will be left in ruins if he underestimates. But if he overestimates, he will be hailed as the person who warned us in time. And so I think the, the entire um, the entire health structure and, and government right now is so biased toward over predicting because they're afraid that their 
their careers and reputations will be left in ruins if they don't. Yeah, I, I think that's a salient point. When we come back with Rich Carlgaard, I want to pick up the conversation because this is a, an important week and the economy. Uh, bills coming due and uh, what indicators we may take from this week that will speak to what should be done next and on the timeline in which it should be done. More with Rich Carlgaard, the publisher of Forbes magazine, the author of Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. Right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Rich Callgard. He's the publisher of Forbes magazine. He's a columnist, speaker, and best-selling author of Late Bloomers. The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement, which I highly recommend. Great book about uh, people that come to entrepreneurial success a little bit later in life. Uh, Rich, we were talking about um, uh, you know, making predictions and, you know, and, and all the incentives are to overreact because there's no consequence for overreacting if you're a public health professional or a politician. Um, but there are real consequences in terms of the economic impact of, of the response to the pandemic. And I, I just wonder, with uh, bills coming due this week uh, and uh, people perhaps getting margin called on loans that they can't pay and so forth, if there's going to be another disaster relief bill that's needed before the end of April with particular uh, focus on the real estate market or, or how you see this playing out and what indicators you're looking for that suggests what we should do and on which timeline we should do it? Well, you know, as a libertarian conservative and a supply sider, I've been my entire adult life. It pains me to think of all the measures that we have to take um, in monetary policy and fiscal policy to keep this yeah. economy alive. And yet we may well have to, um, you know, that, that everybody's a modern monetary theorist now. The idea that the government should be able to you know, put money into the system. I think that we have to do it. If the greater price is that if 47 million people uh, don't have work and if tens of millions of small businesses uh, have to shut their doors, we've got a disaster that could play out for years. It could be as bad as the 1930s. We can't let that happen. We just can't let that happen. Um, I don't think that it should get to that point because, as I said, I think that public health officials are overreacting. And I think that we ought to be able to use data to really figure out how can we selectively start opening up the economy? Can we lift the ban on uh, people getting together from 10 people to 50, from 50 people to 100, and so on and so on? There ought to be a gradual lifting that should start sooner rather than later. You know, Singapore, you can go to the movies. They've, they've just – you've you know, every other seat is unavailable. So they're using common sense, things like that. Uh, yeah, uh, that would be welcome. And, and uh, also to an assessment, I mean, you know, the, the problem is and, and the argument made by uh, some on the left that everybody is a socialist now. No, not exactly. Uh, when you have the government shut people down, uh, then it's sort of incumbent upon the government to um, to pay for what it broke. And that's what I see going on right now. Yeah, well, that boy, you put it perfectly, Dan. They need to pay for what they broke, and uh, they have broken too much, in my opinion. Uh, by the way, I want a, a hat tip uh, for people who are looking for good information. 
Um, uh, this, this is a company that was started in Chicago, realclearpolitics.com yeah, sure. and realclearmarkets.com are excellent, excellent sources of both sides of the story. I think if we're all, uh, if, for, a, for an optimistic supply side or libertarian conservative like myself, I have to check my confirmation biases at the door, just like everybody else does. I wish public health officials would do it more. But one of the virtues of Real Clear Politics and RealClearMarkets.com is that you can read both sides. And if you feel yourself persuaded by the other side, well, maybe, you know, lean into that a little bit because everybody needs to check their confirmation biases now and then. Absolutely. You know, I, I read uh, the daily Real Clear Politics, Real Clear Markets, as you said, Real Clear um, everything. They've got so, all sorts of offshoots, RealClearHealth.com, too. Um, I wanted to get your reaction on the, the under-discussed $4 trillion part of the $6 trillion disaster relief and where that's going um, that's, of course, the uh, the Fed side, the monetary policy side. Jim Bianco, the president and founder of Bianco Research, uh, penned an op-ed in Bloomberg uh, where he suggests the Fed's cure risks being worse than the disease. And he cites uh, all of the um, the new uh, uh, allocations of capital and financial markets that the Fed is making uh, commercial paper, uh, corporate credit facility, uh, term asset-backed securities loan facility, secondary market corporate credit facility, Main Street business lending program. He writes, to put it bluntly, the Fed isn't allowed to do any of this. The central bank is only allowed to purchase or lend against securities that have government guarantee. And so we're really getting far afield from the Fed's, um, the Fed's stated mission, and that has the potential to throw off all sorts of externalities that need to be considered. Yeah, and that's why I think when you look at the global stock markets, or let's just look at the U.S. stock markets. Um, let's look at the S&P 500, which is you know a, a good indicator of the general stock market. Let's look at the Russell 2000 small businesses, and then look at the Nasdaq 100, which is big tech. Which one is doing better than the other two? It's the Nasdaq 100. These companies are big. They are, uh, you know, they don't have a lot of physical presence. They have a lot of cash. And so I think what's going to happen with all this Fed loosening is it will go into the stock market. That's why the stock market is not down as much as you would think it would be down right. if we really are on the cusp of the Great Depression. The problem is, is that these, the vast majority of people work for privately held tiny companies. Um, they're self-employed. They run little shops. And those are the ones that are going to get killed, and those are the ones that need the money. But the money's going to go into the stock market. Well, right. And so does uh, what you're describing have uh, another uh, unintended and uh, disruptive in terms of societal cohesion potential outcome, which is uh, increased stratification, uh, the haves versus the have nots coming out of this? Oh, boy. I you know, if we think this country has been divided, um, both you you have left wing populists and you have right wing populists, if we think that populism has been a strident force to date. It's just going to multiply by five or ten going into the future. I think the you know civil order in the United States is going to be uh, really challenged going forward, and that is one of those um, horrible externalities that this whole crisis has created and government broken. He is Rich Carlgard, publisher of Forbes Magazine, columnist, speaker, best-selling author. Pick up the book, Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. Rich, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Always, uh, always a pleasure, Dan. Take care now. Keep on rocking me, baby. Keep on rocking me, baby.
is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And you know I love the ingenuity of uh, Americans. We've talked about it in the industrial sector, but uh, I would also include uh, an appreciation of the creativity in the YouTube sector, as it were, the parodies, the, the coronavirus-inspired parodies, the, some of them which also work out to be PSAs, like uh, the great uh, Do-Re-Mi Sound of Music uh, parody slash PSA we played yesterday. How about uh, this offering from uh, Brent McCullough, uh, inspired by the Bee Gees. This is another earworm. You're going to remember this and listen to the lyrics too, so you can uh, update them for current relevance. I'd say it's pretty good. I, the production value on these things is so good, and the, uh, I mean, that is much better than karaoke quality, isn't it? The uh, lyrical treatments are pretty good as well. We'll have uh, another later in the show, perhaps. Uh, Chris Mann, who gave us My Corona or last week, uh, has another offering of, of uh, using an Adele song as the basis. Uh, no parody here, no safe spaces. NoSafeSpaces.com is where, for a limited time, you can find the number one political documentary of 2019. This is the documentary produced by our friend and colleague, Dennis Prager, our friend and my colleague, Dennis Prager, and Adam Carolla, that uh, reveals how America has become a dangerous place to speak your mind in many quarters and share ideas. That's an opportunity to support a film that shares your American values. Hollywood has tried to keep it, done a pretty good job of keeping it off the streaming services. So you're not going to find it on Amazon, Netflix, or Hulu. You will find it for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. So make good use of uh, this time when you've got some downtime and uh, gather the family around and check out Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla and what they produced along with uh, help from uh, really intellects from across the political spectrum, from the uh, Jordan Petersons and Ben Shapiro's to the Van Joneses and the Cornell West. NoSafeSpaces.com is where you find Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla's work. Number one political documentary of 2019. Check it out. This is the Dan Prof Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show at uh, Monday Night's Briefing. President Trump had uh, this to say about uh, the next 30 days after, of course, issuing the uh, extension of the federal guidelines that have been in place for the previous two weeks through April 30th. Challenging times are ahead for the next 30 days. And this is a very vital 30 days. We're sort of putting it all on the line. This 30 days so important because we have to get back. But the more we dedicate ourselves today, the more quickly we will emerge on the other side of the crisis. And that's the time we're waiting for. The more we commit ourselves now, the sooner we can win the fight and return to our lives. And they will be great lives. There'll be different lives, though. Challenging times beget changing times. And what will a post-COVID-19 America look like? This is a question much on the minds of many, as it should be as we're making assessments and uh, offering reflections in real time uh, for some assessments and reflections. We're pleased to be joined again by Grady Means. He's a contributor to The Hill, thehill.com, Washington Times, San Fran Chronicle. He served in the White House as a policy assistant to Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. Grady, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks for having me on. Uh, You uh, have peace uh, in The Hill uh, reflecting on just this topic. What, uh, What does America look like when we do emerge from this, as we inevitably will in the not-too-distant future, whether that's April or June. What are your thoughts about how America will be changed for the uh, the good, the bad, the ugly? Dan, I think uh, the president's right. I think we will come out of this. We'll come out of it strong. I think the uh, last part of this year could look very good. But I think it may also look dramatically different. I think we may be entering into a completely different country that we almost wouldn't recognize. Uh, when you look at the market, the market has lost trillions of dollars uh, over the shortest period of time in our history. It, uh, it has been a bigger change, literally, economically, for this country than either of the world wars, literally, than the Civil War, than the Revolutionary War. Certainly a thousand times more dramatic than 9-11 in terms of overall economic impact on the country. As we look at that, it's probably going to be one of the biggest transfers of capital and one of the biggest transfers of wealth we, we could imagine Across the board, uh, the market has, go- market has gone way down, and now it's creeping up a little bit. But as it recovers, it's going to recover in entirely new areas. It's not going to be as if it sort of steps down and then steps back up into the same companies. It's going to be different, and you can already see it. You can see companies uh, doing dramatic layoffs uh, today, and you can see companies hiring in very large numbers today. You see Macy's yesterday lay off uh, over 100,000 people while you see uh, Amazon at the same time hiring over 100,000 people. I think this probably is the decisive move toward online retail. Uh, it's a decisive move toward a restructuring of the economy. So on that aspect of it, does it, does it just expedite what was inevitable, like you're talking about moving from bricks-and-mortar retail to uh, more wholly online? Uh, that's, that's one aspect of it, expediting the eventual transition it's a whole nother thing to start thinking about, uh, you know, real paradigm shifts with respect to how we do big things like, say, education in this country. Well, that's exactly right. Education is dramatically going to change. I mean, we're going to see, I believe, uh, the collapse and failures of a lot of our universities. 
they, um, they've seen their endowments uh, for the private ones crash. Uh, the states, uh, which support a lot of the state universities, are going to burn through their reserves extremely quickly. Their tax base has overnight dried up. Uh, the smartest thing they could do would be to cut taxes immediately and cut budgets, but that is simply not in their political vocabulary. And uh, so they probably won't do that very quickly, nor will the counties, uh, and they're going to look at uh, a train wreck. And so when I look at education, which is one, ask, one, one outcome of that, they're not going to be able to put as much into state universities. Uh, private universities are going to be in, in serious trouble. And uh, so you're going to see a movement toward online learning at the university level, uh, you're going to see a lot more interest in online learning at the, uh, at the secondary level and the primary school level. Uh, there, there will be uh, enormous change uh, over literally uh, no period of time. Do, and, you, um, do you worry that uh, a, a move in the direction of more telemedicine, distance learning, telecommuting will uh, further atomize society and and are we thinking through the implications of that, human beings being social beings innately? It's hard to tell. I mean, uh, you know, 35 years ago, people were always fond of saying Nintendo, no friendo, uh, that it was going to put <laughs> yeah, us into right. our little corners and not talk to each other. In fact, the opposite's been true. We talk to each other almost too much. I mean, if you look at social network networking, it's a beehive uh, of people exchanging ideas. I mean, our politics has become fierce uh, across the country. Everybody, of course, every neighborhood today has an opinion about COVID-19. Every single person in a neighborhood is an expert on epidemiology. <laughs> uh, they quote the statistics. So I don't think so. I, I think it'll be different. Uh, it'll be more, uh, you know, online and using our technology. But I don't see us becoming isolated. I see just the opposite. Uh, do you think? Again, and, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but but do you think oh, no. th thinking about things that you sort of can't anticipate? I mean, that are somewhat difficult to, to anticipate in terms of how uh, civilization reacts. There's a, a good piece in the journal uh, earlier in the week uh, interview with Edward, uh, with uh, Frank Snowden, the historian, who's written a book about epidemics and how they change civilizations. And just one example that you wouldn't think of and that you wouldn't consider if you were walking uh, around in Paris, which, of course, you can't do right now, but say you could. Um, that he makes the point that when Napoleon III rebuilt Paris in the mid-1800s, one of his objectives was to protect against cholera. Uh, so broad boulevards where the sun and the light could disperse the miasma. Uh, there was also uh, new cleanliness standards with respect to the construction of houses, and this was all in reaction to cholera epidemics. And I wonder if there are things that we're not thinking about that you could have in terms of, you know, the, the superstructure of civilization in response to COVID-19. I think there is. I think it's uh, impossible to predict because our economy uh, and our markets move so quickly. And honestly, they're so ruthless uh, when they move that you, you can't predict where you're going. I do think uh, that uh, this particular uh, incident this year has put us unexpectedly into a space-time wormhole. And uh, where we come out, what galaxy we emerge in, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, a number of things are going to be shocking and dramatic. One thing that will be shocking to uh, conservatives, I think, is that uh, counties are going to suddenly realize their property tax base has disappeared. Uh, they're going to understand that it's not coming back. The uh, smart ones will see that they have to compete for business and, uh, and they have to compete for future taxpayers, and they will do the very smart thing, which is dramatically lower taxes 
the most of them will not do that, and they will raise taxes. And so you're going to see a migration around the country, I think, which will be extremely dramatic. People will be moving as such to parts of the country. Yeah. Yep. Which which has been happening, right? I mean, uh, projected based on the 2020 census that you'll see Texas and Florida gain multiple seats, while states like New York, Illinois, California will lose seats. And uh, it's interesting that you say that, the timeliness of it, because uh, WalletHub just did a study of the state and local tax burdens uh, and ranked the states 1 to 51. They included D.C. And, of course, my home yep. state of Illinois is 51, meaning the worst. Um, but yep. uh, but th- this the, the, the nice thing they did was compare federal tax burden and state local tax burden for the median household in each state. And the disparity is so significant. So a top five state like Florida the state and local tax burden for the median household is 23 percent less than your federal tax burden. In a state like Illinois, the state and local tax burden is 40 percent more than your federal tax burden. I mean, a 60 percent swing from uh, Florida to Illinois, that is significant. And that's enough to incentivize people to move to uh, more friendly confines. Well, and this will be Darwinian. Uh, I mean, there will be a Darwin Award for state and local tax authorities because state uh, states and counties and cities can do vir- virtually nothing from an economic point of view to help people get out of this uh, problem. The only group that can help is the feds, uh, and they're doing what they can do. I'm not sure I agree with everything they're doing, but they're the only ones who can distribute broad-based income. They're the only ones who can distribute broad-based corporate support. The states cannot do that. The counties can't do that. So the counties and states should get out of the way, cut taxes, cut budgets aggressively right now. But, of course, they won't. They'll go the opposite way. So the ones with the very high taxes, you know, the uh, the Illinois, the Californias, uh, they will not do that. And so they'll burn through reserves, and they'll basically, you know, they may even raise taxes and chase more people away. And then they're in for a train wreck. They're in a downward spiral they cannot correct. So it's going to be it's going to be very, very different. When we and, uh, uh, we're going to be shocked to see the America we come out with. Great. Let's hold it there. When we come back, I want you to uh, discuss uh, uh, a observation you made in your piece about an era of nationalistic globalism we may be entering, particularly uh, under President Trump. More with Grady Means, contributor to The Hill, Washington Times, San Fran Chronicle, former policy assistant to VP Nelson Rockefeller, right after this. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Grady Means, contributor to The Hill, Washington Times, and San Francisco Chronicle, former policy assistant to Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. And Grady, uh, going back to this uh, op-ed you uh, Pen for the hill.com. Uh, you talk about America maybe shifting toward what Trump might call nationalistic globalism. Uh, develop that uh, that phrase for us. The most dramatic scene, visual that I saw this week, were the Italians burning the EC flag. They basically have a new theme in Italy. We are on our own, and that is a real break of. I mean, that's as bad as Brexit by far. And I think uh, certainly America has learned an interesting lesson. Uh, We've learned it in terms of our dependence on China, for example. Uh, We've learned that uh, being dependent on pharmaceuticals and antibiotics could be very, very dangerous, especially when the Chinese foreign ministry actually threatens us to use uh, withdrawal or or 
keeping back antibiotics to penalize us and hurt us. We don't have to be told that lesson twice. The worries about Huawei and the uh, 5G technology and the ways in which they may be embedding that in our infrastructure and technology as a spy tool. We're learning a lot of lessons. We've learned we learned a few before, but we're learning even more now. And so I think uh, we, we need to be in the global market. There's no question. We need to trade. It's advanced every country. But I think we're going to be a lot more careful. And I think it's moving in the direction that Trump has been trying to lead us anyway, which I call nationalistic globalism, which is participating in the global market, but also keeping secure industries and security industries at home, keeping our basic industrial uh, base at home, uh, so that in the end we really don't need to depend upon other countries. Um, uh, the reason Spain dominated Europe for, for many centuries was because they, had, they were the breadbasket of Europe. Uh, they understood that your basic commodities, agriculture, were your power. And I think we're understanding that our basic commodities, technology, pharmaceuticals, um, you know, other credit, uh, rare earth metals and materials which go into our, 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 uh, our electronics industry are critical, and we cannot depend on other people for them because, as we can see in this most recent situation, uh, very bad things happen when we do. So I think um, uh, from, a, um, from a policy point of view, a lot of people looked at Trump and said that he was overly nationalistic and protectionist. I think now people are going to take another look at that. Uh, and think maybe this is not so bad. Maybe we have to be a little more careful. Maybe we do have to secure domestic industries and domestic employment. Uh, so, when, when, but that will also be a different world. And and um, it, what we see now, though, too, is you know autocrats or aspiring autocrats take advantage of these crises too to consolidate power, and we're seeing a lot of that going on to expand their power. Uh, and so the the question is, and and this uh, foreign policy magazine assembled uh, its uh, collection of deep thinkers. And one of um, one of the offerings from Stephen Walt is that the world is going to be less open and less free and thus less prosperous. Uh, does uh, nationalistic globalism, does it concern you that it will feed uh, a uh, more closed, uh, less free and thus less prosperous world? You know, it's always hard to tell. My observation about technology is that it's actually been opening us up. Uh, more people have information. More, some of it may be wrong, but more people have information. More people have opinions. More people debate. And uh, I mean, it's it's easy to see technology as a tool of the tyrant. Um, and uh, I think one of your local guys, maybe even your former mayor, said never let a uh, never let a uh, crisis go to waste. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, but I but I don't necessarily see that. Uh, in fact, in many ways. The tyrants are moving slowly. I mean, China's moved very badly on this, very slowly. It's hurt them very badly. It may disrupt them a bit. It may destabilize them a bit. Uh, certainly, uh, the way in which the oil markets have gone is no friend of our oil tyrants like Venezuela. Uh, even Russia is hurting from that. Uh, so, uh, once again, it's extremely hard to predict. But I don't. I understand the notion that uh, we, could, we just could fold into a totalitarian scenario, but I don't necessarily see that at all. What about uh, sort of the, the creeping marginalization of uh, freedom in this country? Um, you know, won't uh, won't be a you know, Chinese Communist Politburo lording over us uh, coming out of this, but things like uh, even Bill Gates has proposed that the idea you need you'll need a medical certificate. Uh, that details whether or not you were infected, whether or not you've been tested and tested negative to 
I, I don't know, uh, in perpetuity to to add to to get on a plane or to reopen your business or to travel in a public park. I, I don't know exactly what he has in mind. I'm not sure he does, but I don't like the Orwellian direction in which he's going. I don't think most people will either. I mean, that's certainly why Trump got elected. Um, one of the uh, counter forces to that is that uh, uh, the uh, the folks who might implement that are not going to have any money to do it. Um, you know, our, our tax base uh, is going to change. Uh, we're going after this massive influx of money to save the economy. Uh, we're odd, oddly enough going to have to think about restraining taxes and restraining a lot of vehicles of government. And so, you know, while Bill Gates uh, was very good at uh, taking uh, based, you know, a visual basic and selling it to IBM and uh, and hitting the lottery and making uh, nearly $100 billion, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that Bill Gates' opinion uh, on how to manage individuals around the country uh, is a particularly useful idea. I mean, everybody has an idea. I don't even think I put Bill Gates above anybody. Uh, uh, so, what, yeah, no, yeah, it's fair, fair enough. And I, I wanted to get back to sort of the, the, the global uh, uh, arena. And uh, what about organizations like the World Health Organization that are under the sort of scrutiny they haven't been under in a while? and how they're sort of being exposed. I mean, not a lot of people are paying attention, not as many as should be, but they're being exposed as a house organ for the Chinese communists in really disgraceful ways, an unwillingness to even discuss Taiwan, as we've seen from some senior officials there, as well as uh, essentially uh, repeating or turning a a blind uh, eye and ear towards Chinese propaganda. Well, it's not baseball season, but I do appreciate the slowball. Um, yeah. Basically, um, uh, basically, the World Health Organization has been dreadful uh, since the very beginning. They said travel out of China was fine. They said China was doing a wonderful job. They supported all of the Chinese propaganda from day one, uh, which is the beginning of the year and the end of last year. Uh, you can pin a huge amount of this entire disaster on the World Trade Organization. The World Trade, or the, sorry, the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization has promoted the statistics uh, about uh, the incidents in China and the death rates, all of which are nonsense, and all of which we've based a lot of our assumptions. I mean, you can't forget that people said this was 10x to 30x worse than the flu. Uh, now we find this week that the worst, the worst numbers we're looking at are a little less than uh, 2x the flu. Uh, if we had said 2x the flu day one, we might have had entirely different policies. Mm. And yet we believe the World Health Organization. We went for dramatic policies based upon this thing being 10 to 30 times worse than the flu in terms of kill rates. Uh, we thought it was going to kill millions. Now now people say, well, maybe not millions, maybe 100,000. I mean, we lose 60,000 60, every year with the flu. Uh, so that might have changed our perspective a lot. And I, I would put that right at the feet of the World Health Organization. And they, they seem to be completely knuckling under to China. They're uh, run by a fellow, I'm sure he's a very capable fellow from Ethiopia. But you don't forget that uh, China is one of the biggest investors in Ethiopia. They put this guy in charge of the World Health Organization. And uh, I think they're getting their money's worth out of the World Health Organization to the detriment of most of the world. He is Grady Means, contributor to The Hill, Washington Times, San Francisco Chronicle, former policy assistant to Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. Grady, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Dan. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. 
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, Fredo Cuomo and Chris Cuomo. Oh, wait, Fredo Cuomo is Chris Cuomo. Yeah, it's so hard to keep Fredo correct. It really is Fredo and Fredo. I don't know that there's a Michael in this family, but Fredo Cuomo interviewed his brother, Andrew Cuomo, yesterday. And I got to tell you, this was uh, some performance. I can't wait until everything is back to normal so that uh, these two can uh, do this routine off, off Broadway. Chris inquiring about Andrew's presidential ambitions since uh, those are being imputed upon him by uh, many in Democrat circles who don't think Joe Biden makes it across the finish line. Let me ask you something. Uh, With all of this adulation that you're getting for doing your job, are you thinking about running for president? Tell the audience. No, no. No, you won't answer? No, I answered. The answer is no. No, you're not thinking about it? Sometimes it's one word. I said no. Have you thought about it? No. Are you open to thinking about it? No. Might you think about it at some point? No. How can you know what you might think about at some point right now? Because I know what I might think about and what I won't think about. But you're a great interviewer, by the way. Appreciate it. Learn from the best. I mean, not since who's on first have I heard a routine that good. It's uh, great stuff. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Julie Kelly. She's a senior contributor for AmGreatness.com. Julie, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. They are a funny, funny couple, the the Cuomo brothers are. Andrew Cuomo says he's not thinking about running for president, but 90% of uh, New Yorkers think he's doing a bang-up job, and uh, that's, of course, booing the idea and putting him on the betting board for taking the nomination away from Joe Biden. What what about, uh, I mean, for, you know, forgetting uh, Chris Cuomo and his wonderful interviewing skills, I think actually what comes across there is, you know, you're getting uh, such adulation for doing your job. I think Chris Cuomo is waiting for similar adulation for doing whatever it is his job is at CNN. But you've written, I should say, about uh, Andrew Cuomo and the job he's doing, and you're in the 12 percent who doesn't think he's doing such a great job. You know, he's giving his press conferences and he has a little Trumpism about him. You know, he likes the attention and he kind of riffs on these personal stories and, you know, kind of repeats himself. But people are swooning over his presentation. Meanwhile, they're overlooking the fact that he and his mayor completely avoided and ignored preparing for this crisis, even though they had two months to do so. So now they're scrambling And let's talk about what they did. They continued to let tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people into New York State and into New York City from foreign countries, particularly areas from affected regions. Um, He bragged about this, Andrew Cuomo, last week, saying this is why they have so many more cases is because they're the open arms. You know, they're the front door to the world, to America. Mm -hmm. Why was he just last week complaining about lack of ventilators? He should have been preparing for weeks to secure more ventilators, knowing how hard his state and city would become. Why did he not prepare his already overburdened health care and hospital system? I mean, you had New York City nurses go on strike last year due to inhumane and overcrowding in their hospitals and emergency rooms. Why did, why did he not spend the last two months preparing for this so-called surge in hospitalizations? He and Bill de Blasio did nothing to prepare for this. Now they go on TV every day, or Cuomo does, and tries to look like a big hero. And the antidote, I suppose, to Donald Trump. Well, right, and and uh, he does it with, uh, you know, the uh, Emma Lazarus invocations that you referenced, as well as flowcharts. And everybody likes a good flowchart, a good PowerPoint presentation. Mm-hmm. It makes you look like you know what you're talking about or know what you're doing. And, uh, you know, in point of fact, for all the complaints from certain quarters about when is Trump going to do something and is falling down on the job and these these on again, off again criticisms from certain quarters, 
Um, I mean, where would New York City and New York State be without this massive federal response, including the USNS Comfort that pulled into dock yesterday? That's right. And uh, yes, so he didn't prepare his hospitals. He didn't prepare to secure enough supplies. He admitted last week that the state only had 4,000 ventilators. He just moved to acquire another another 7,000. The federal government had to send him another 4,000. So now he's scrambling, even though a report in 2015 said that they were a good 15 to 16,000 ventilators short should any kind of viral epidemic hit the city or the state. He ignored that. His officials ignored that. They did nothing to prepare Then he sits there and whines that Donald Trump and the White House didn't do enough to rescue his own city. Now, Dan, as Chicagoans, we know we're reminded every day that New York is filled with the smartest people, the greatest people, the best people, the greatest experts, right? They are top notch. Everybody else in the country, uh, you know, should swoon and, and, you know, we're second, third class citizens compared to New Yorkers. They couldn't do a better job to prepare for this. I mean, it exposes not just their leadership, but the whole mindset of New York. Um, we feel, of course, the people who are falling ill, the healthcare providers who are on the front lines, they should be mad at their leaders. They shouldn't be mad at Donald Trump. When we come back with uh, Julie Kelly, uh, I want to go over this uh, Washington Post ABC News presidential poll that, uh, frankly, provides more grist for the mill for uh, Cuomo gambit for the Democrat nomination. More with Julie Kelly, senior contributor for American Greatness and Greatness.com. Right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Julie Kelly, senior contributor for American Greatness and Greatness.com. And uh, Julie, a uh, Washington Post ABC News poll shows uh, Trump and Biden basically in a dead heat. Biden 49, Trump 47. This is among registered voters. The interesting thing is intensity. More than eight in 10 registered voters who currently side with Trump are enthusiastic about the support. That compares with seven in 10 for Biden is about a 12 point enthusiasm gap there. And if you break it down further, 55 percent of Trump supporters, very enthusiastic, 32 percent, somewhat enthusiastic. Biden, 24, very enthusiastic, while 46 percent, somewhat enthusiastic. And I mean, again, this is a snapshot in time and we're in a, the, the middle of a pandemic. So those numbers will move around over the course of the next seven months, to be sure. But it does speak at least initially to what uh, many pundits, myself included, said about Joe Biden, which is uh, he is a particularly weak candidate against Trump because he doesn't bring the base. And in this polarized climate, these are base plus elections here, negative partisanship elections. So you have to have enthusiasm to get the turnout you need. And it seems like, at least according to this survey, Biden is lacking in that enthusiasm at present. I mean, I'm kind of stunned that his candidate, Max Hedrum, shtick routine isn't uh, attracting more voters. Uh, I, that's just such a mystery. Even scripted, even in friendly territory, Joe Biden cannot make the case that he's anywhere close to leading this country. I think the Democratic voters have reason to be nervous. I think that that's why they're looking at possible alternatives like Andrew Cuomo. How that would shake out, I have no idea. We still have Bernie Sanders lurking around somewhere. He hasn't dropped out yet. 
there's part of me, Dan, and it sounds crazy and conspiratorial and cynical, but you wonder how much of this is aimed toward giving a reason to cancel the Democratic National Convention so you don't have to have Joe Biden front and center in front of the country uh, proving to everybody that he's should not be anywhere close to the White House. Uh, I wanted to uh, go back to what's happening in the uh, the United 50 states because things are very different to state to state. You uh, uh, wrote about uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida. Uh, our friend John Gabriel over at ricochet.com uh, wrote about uh, Doug Ducey and Arizona, both coming under criticism for underreacting because that's the posture of the press corps, both in D.C. and then w- with respect to the regional outposts in the uh, in the states uh, that, uh, you know, they haven't moved to institute the same draconian measures we've seen in places like New York and Illinois and California. Uh, geez, Virginia. How about Ralph Northam, Ralph oh. KKK Northam <laughs> calling a, a stay a shelter in place order until June 10th? Um, so because Ducey and DeSantis to name, but two, because they won, uh, last cycle and they, they, that was very upsetting to the press corps and because they're, uh, they're not doing everything that Ralph KKK Northam is doing. They're underreacting and, uh, putting people's lives in jeopardy. Well, I'm in Florida now and, um, I mean, there's not a formal lockdown in place, but look, most of the business, retail, restaurant activity, uh, is dead. Um, you know, he shut down, DeSantis did shut down all the restaurants, beaches and bars a few weeks ago. Um, there's not a lot of business activity. A lot of hotels are closed down. So even though there's not a formal order in place, a lot of the same, uh, you know, things are happening here that are happening in other states. Right. But there's no reason to lock down a Florida. In fact, there's actually arguments to open up parts of Florida because the big mistake, and both DeSantis and Cuomo have admitted this, that maybe shutting down the schools and the colleges was a bad idea because they're putting you know, younger people who might be carriers in with more high-risk populations. But look, you've got a place like Florida with the high population of senior citizens. They don't. Have, they have very few cases. They have less than 75 fatalities so far. The state is really in good shape considering that he's prepared for extra hospital beds. Uh, you know they have contingency plans, and so there's no reason for him to cave. I hope he doesn't. Well, uh, right, but it, and 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 you know it just speaks to sort of the the culture that's being promoted, and and mainly by uh, the D.C. press corps. Which is, you know, if you're not threatening people with arrest for walking on a bike path like in Chicago or or uh, Honolulu or New York, then you're not serious about uh, stopping the spread of COVID-19. It's really alarming at so many levels. You see people actually cheering Ralph Northam's decision yesterday. So all that is is one-upping each other, right? So you have a governor say, okay, until May 1st, and then they just keep one-upping each other. There's no scientific basis for what Ralph Northam did. There's no magical date about June 30th, uh, 10th. There's no magical date about April 30th, which will be the new guidelines coming out today. There's no science to back this up. And quite frankly, Dan, and I'll have a piece up on this tomorrow, the data that they're relying on is as sketchy, if not more sketchy, than the climate science that we've been that's been shoved on our throat for the past 20 years. So it's really alarming even to see the White House and the president buy into this hysteria based on sketchy, flawed, or politicized science. Yeah, I mean, it's there's certainly the issue of incompletion, and that's not coming from uh, Republican politicians. That's coming from epidemiologists at Stanford and 
and st- statisticians at Berkeley right. and elsewhere, just in terms of the, the, the continuing search, which we've been talking about on this show for a couple of weeks now, the continuing search for something approach, uh, approaching a reliable denominator so you can really start to model the spread. You can get testing, uh, uh, you know, the, the progression of testing down to representative samples so you can model particular regions and communities as well. And then you can make predictions about resources that will be needed from from uh, hospital beds to uh, uh, to the, the full panoply of resources that are being described, ventilators and the like. And uh, it's just it's just unfortunate that there's just such a culture where there's just no restraint to wait for the sort of information that would make informed decisions before you run headlong off a cliff. There aren't. And I think one of another big gap in the data, Dan, is um, what cases were here? How much how prevalent was coronavirus here before widespread testing started? you know, around the middle of this month. We don't know what the cases were from January 1 till, you know, the third week of March. Even though it had already started across the globe, the first reported case was in Washington State in mid-January. So we know that this virus has been here for a good solid two months. Is there a chance that some of these areas already hit their peak? We saw this huge spike in flu-like activity in February. That missing data is huge and will tell a bigger part of the story than what we're being told now. She is Julie Kelly, senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com. Julie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Thanks so much. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Bocelli versus Berkeley School of Music in Boston. Uh, Andrea Bocelli in, uh, on uh, James Corden's show, his uh, late night show last night from Italy with uh, this classic. You know it. version time to say goodbye um probably seen it uh, song by bocelli with sarah brightman that's uh, nice Oof, it's uplifting but uh, here's an uplift uplifting music along with an uplifting story uh the berkeley school of music in boston which uh has produced umpteen uh, uh grammy winners very talented musicians well uh since uh, their uh, recitals are off because of covid19 one enterprising Berkeley student got together the musicians, the talented musicians and vocalists, her classmates, and uh, did this. Harry Smith reporting for the Today Show. What the world needs now is love, Immediately, I knew that I wanted to do something that could bring everyone back together and obviously in, in a remote way because we couldn't physically be together. So that's kind of when everything sort of clicked. Written by Hal David and Burt Bacharach, What the World Needs Now was a hit in 1965. It's a simple message. It's to the point. It's concise. And it's 
just so many people telling you that, then it, it must be true. Shelby Rassler, a composition major at Berkeley, wrote the orchestrations, created a kind of musical template, and sent it out to her classmates. Their performances came flooding back. Seeing my friends doing what they love and what they're so passionate about, and what I see them do every day in person, that it, it just melted my heart. It's a very good, great story. Well done uh, package from Harry Smith there, and well done by uh, uh, those uh, Berkeley music school students. Uh, Dennis Prager's passion, our colleague, friend Dennis Prager, Marka, and uh, making sure that there are no safe spaces, that uh, we are free people who can speak freely and think freely. Free minds, free markets, free society. Good news, no safe spaces, the number one political documentary of 2019 featuring Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla, is available to watch for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. Again, nosafespaces.com. Use this downtime to check out that documentary if you haven't seen it yet. Nosafespaces.com. Hollywood uh, didn't want it in the, on the streaming services, uh, so you can get it and tell your friends to check it out at nosafespaces.com, documenting the effort to... Quiet people who have unpopular opinions on social media, on college campuses. Check it out, nosafespaces.com. Thanks again for joining us. Please do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.